Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And welcome to Safety Wars for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm going to start with our regular introduction here. From the border of liberty and prosperity and the highway to the north, this is Safety Wars. We go through that little introduction to let the streamers kick in and everything else here. We had a recent upgrade in our internet service here. We're on fiber optics now. But still, things take a couple of minutes to kick in, it seems. I think it's the internet in the neighborhood. How's everybody doing out there? Last day in November. Who would have thought? This year just flew by. Hope that you are enjoying your year so far. Things are going well. And now last week was Thanksgiving. And like a lot of families, it's our tradition. And it came over from my wife's family. that we say what we're thankful for. And... As usual, I, I'm the last one to go. Because after I say what I'm thankful for, there's nothing else to say. Other than let's eat. And it's real simple. What are we thankful for? We're thankful for the opportunity to learn and improve. We're thankful for resiliency. Right? We're thankful for the opportunity. Uh, you folks give me here every night speaking to you. That's what we're thankful for. So, anyway, a lot of news going on uh, out there. Uh, today, uh, 
Now we're just gonna start out with some uh, regular new our regular news reviews, and we're gonna go into the uh, Yankem Majestic Pain Corporation. Uh, the Chemical Safety Board came out with their report uh, today, I believe it was. Uh, no, at least it hit the LinkedIn today, and we're going to go over that in a little bit in depth here. With this, uh, we do have some, I do have some experience with some pressure vessels and things of that nature. We do have some comments on that. But first, let's talk about this. I'm always talking about demography here. One of my, that's one of my uh, favorite subjects is demography. Dem demographic trends, demographic issues, things of that nature. And what I, uh, you know, and when it hits the mainstream uh, news, I always make it a point to go over it. And right now I'm making sure that we're on the air. Yes, we are on the air. So, uh, right. Yes, we are on the air. So, uh, we, well, now this goes back uh, to the declining birth rates. Uh, if we recall... It started probably in the 1920s uh, with the eugenics movement, right, which came out of the progressive era. And then it moved on, and it seemed to go underground because there were, and it became controversial because we had a lot of states out there that were uh, um, uh, enacting sterility laws uh, and things of that nature, forced uh, abortions things of that nature, of that whole era. Then that went underground in the mid-1930s. And we could debate that all day long, what happened there society-wise. And then it reasserted itself in the 1960s with the uh, 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 zero population growth people and the Paul Ehrlich people uh, who came out with anything. It was it goes really goes beyond liberal and conservative, right and left. It goes beyond that. Uh, because you had a lot of people who were conservatives, uh, Barry Goldwater being one of them, and uh, from what I've read and from what I've spoken to over the years, people who worked on his campaign, Barry Goldwater, who ran for president in 1964, I believe, yeah, 1964, and uh, now with uh, uh, birth control, population growth, and everything that goes along with it. And I'm not going to discuss the morality or anything like that. That's not what the point is. But what happened was, was uh, late 1960s, there was a big move in the West to reduce population. Uh, and then we started promoting that in the United States uh, throughout the world, starting with one of the first countries we did that was with uh, India. And we've made it as part of a foreign age package to India, things of that nature. So we've been trying to get population down, right, for a whole host of reasons. But, and this is where the where I get accused of being conspiratorial here. And uh, really, it's not a conspiracy when it's done out in the open. I don't think that this was ever really explained totally to the public. Now, uh, with the call, you need for an economy to grow, and we have a growing economy. That's where the capitalism is set up. Even in a socialist or communist system, you have to have a growing economy for things to move along. Otherwise, you end up like North Korea, right, where everybody is all you know, uh, 
under a dictatorship, more or less. And you have to have the right people in the right ages. One of the perfect examples is the uh, Harley Davidson, where once the baby boomers got uh, aged out of buying Harley Davidsons, the sales went, uh, no, just absolutely tanked. And we're finding that out with a whole bunch of stuff. The advantage that we have in the United States and a lot of the other countries in Western Europe is that we have mass immigration here. We need immigration to keep the economy growing and the right immigration as far as the right age groups where people are going to be buying, people are going to be having babies. If you don't have that, stuff starts to get really impacted and you have to adjust, right? So a lot of school districts, for example, uh, throughout from the 80s to the mid-2000s, they were getting rid of schools, closing down schools. Where I grew up, they closed down a major school in the late 1970s because they didn't have the kids anymore, right? Baby, end of the baby boom uh, generation. And it goes on and on. And what and there's a lot of theories that, and now it's not theories as of right now, that the war over in Ukraine and Russia is in part related to demography. So, uh, uh, because the former Soviet Union enacted these population uh, growth policies back in the 1920s, and it took a long time for things to catch up with with everything, right? This came out of the uh, express.co.uk today. Uh, Vladimir Putin demands Russian women have eight or more children to make up for war deaths. Now, if you recall, this was going back maybe 15 years where he was making calls for increased birth rates. And he was giving days off where, you know, uh, if you were married, uh, you know, you would get days off. And then, you know, you go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, take the day and go uh, take your wife out to lunch sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, basically, uh, that's, uh, right. Putin warned that Russia could endure economic problems if women don't give birth to more children. Russian president Vladimir, and I'm not endorsing any policies here. I'm just stating what the facts are. I'm not going to debate this right on this, right? Russian president Vladimir Putin is demanding that women in his country have seven, eight or more children to boost the population. He warned that this is needed to prevent catastrophic demographic problems that could impact the country's economy. Speaking via video link at the World Russian People's Council on Tuesday, he said, Many of our peoples maintain their tradition in the family where four or five or more children are raised. Recall that in Russian families, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers had both seven and eight children. Let's, let us preserve and revive these traditions. Having many children, a large family should become a norm, a way of life for all the people in Russia. A family is not just a foundation for our state and society. It's a spiritual phenomenon, a source or, of morality. Putin himself reportedly has six children, three partners, but only publicly acknowledges two daughters. His comments come as Russia's population fell by 550,000 during the first year of the war in Ukraine. And that number is a little bit disputed, but I'm going to go with well over 100,000 in the key demographic that they need, which are people who work, people who produce, people who buy, people who spend, people uh, and everything else. Some have blamed Russia's population woes on the war in Ukraine, leaving families reluctant to start families. 
Putin is demanding a big upswing in births as Russian parents reduce an average of just 1.42 children between them. Uh, Russia's stagnating birth, stagnating birth rates have been a factor since before the collapse of the USSR in the early 1990s. Life expectancy in the company has barely climbed since 1991, reaching 71.340 years in 2020. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that has said that some of the objective reasons for uh, Russia's demographic problems reflect historical dynamics. The number of women of childbearing age is falling. Again, you have to, right? In the right age group. The average age at which women are having children is rising steadily in modernized urban, well-educated populations. The think tank also cited COVID as a potential factor deterring people in Russia from having children. And uh, going on, uh, they uh, the same group added, uh, this has ridiculously changed family planning. Some people are deciding not to have children or to postpone starting a family or having another child until more psychologically and financially stable times. Nor does the militarization of life in Russia encourage people to add to their families, except for those who consider it their duty to fly in the motherland with the cannon fodder for future wars. Because the Russian, from what I've read, I'm not a military guy, but from what I've read, uh, it's along the lines of, if you ever saw the Joseph Fiennes movie, Enemy at the Gate, where uh, the Russians were sending walls of men into uh, fighting, and that uh, into a war, right? Into a battle line, what have you. And they were getting slaughtered. That's still apparently the same military strategy uh, that they had. And I spoke to my uncle Ziggy, who was a veteran of World War II uh, for Poland, and he said this was what their strategy was when I spoke to him about it while uh, growing up. But anyway, I digress a little bit here. What the point is this. We have, how does this uh, 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 react to safety? You're talking with these lower birth rates, social upheaval, real bad. And in some ways, some would argue very good. However, the fact of the matter is, this has got to be a debate in our society on how we're going to prepare for this. This can't be behind closed doors like a lot of the government policies are uh, generated in this country. This seems to be an open debate. And wherever the chips fall, the chips fall. That's just the way it is uh, with this. I'm not advocating eight or nine person families. I don't, that's not what the point is. What I'm talking about is having a conversation on this in society so we could try to avoid some of these problems. Part of what Russian, no, Rush, why Russia is fighting in Ukraine is people, they cannot, uh, right? If you look at the numbers, people are not going to be of military age. They're not going to have people to fight a war, right? Unless they make huge advances in technology and everything like what we're doing in uh, the West, right, with drone technology and things of that nature. And what's more alarming here is that it's if what I've read from credible sources, not conspiracy theories, the uh, it's in the Russian uh, 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 policy that if things start to go bad during a war, they're going to break out the nukes, right? Smaller nukes, take things out. So this, this stuff is relevant, and I talk about it all the time. This is why we talk about it here: is this stuff, uh, demography. 
right? And the safety war. Uh, big story here today. And uh, this gives me hope in a way, right? And rest in peace, Henry Kissinger, a very, very uh, controversial person involved in, right, uh, uh, no, in, uh, no, he fled Nazi Germany, rose to the highest level that he probably could uh, in, as uh, Secretary of State uh, and during the Nixon administration, was a co-architect of a lot of our foreign policy, very controversial figure on a lot of different ways. Now, what, what, what are you saying? Inside, uh, and this is from the U.S. Sun, right? Henry Kissinger's son has sold how the former diplomat managed to live to over 100 Despite eating a heavy diet of bratwurst and schnitzel. There you go. Bratwurst and schnitzel. Right? Uh, that's what I grew up on. Bratwurst and schnitzel. The former U.S. Secretary of State who served during Nixon and Ford administrations died at his home in Connecticut. Right? Uh, before Seth Kissinger was the last surviving member of President Richard Nixon's cabinet, and while no cause of death was given... Kissinger has previously offered insight into the diplomat's lifestyle months before he died. Not only has he outlived most of his peers, eminent detractors and students, but he has also remained indefatigably active throughout his 90s. God bless him. Kissinger's son David wrote in Washington Post op-ed in May, days before Kissinger's 100th birthday. My father's longevity is especially miraculous when one considers the health regimen he has followed which includes a diet of heavy on bratwurst and Schnitzel, a career of relentless, stressful decision-making, and a love of sports purely as a spectator, never as a participant. Wow. He, uh, he uh, met President Xi Jinping in Beijing in July. But anyway, uh, it's, uh, you know... There's hope for me. I like that bratwurst, right? Now, people are making a big uh, thing over nothing here. Now, uh, full disclosure, uh, I am a Star Trek fan. I think everybody knows that. And we did not name this uh, program Safety Trek because I thought that would have been a little corny. It's Star, right? We Safety Wars, right? But anyway, uh and this is, I'm reading it from The Star, The Daily Star, but uh, he has said this multiple times over the years, uh, William Shatner. Star Trek's William Shatner warns we are dying as he makes King, uh, King Charles plea. Star Trek icon uh, William Shatner opened out about climate change during an appearance on Good Morning Britain of bemoaning stupid humans as he issued a policy. Uh William Shatner had fans worried as he issued a dire warning of very quick deaths on Good Morning Britain. The Star Trek icon appeared on UK to warn fans about human extinction among, uh, uh, amid the climate change crisis. He urged Charles to make an urgent warning to the British people at the COP28 uh, summit in a bombshell interview. The star told the program, uh, he's got to say we're all going to die. That's what he should say to open up with it. Very quickly, we're all going to die. And uh, here we go. Shatner said, if you believe in a soul and a life after that does not interfere with that, your body, like everything else, dies taken over by fungi. Nature claims you no matter what you do, so why not have a voice in your reclamation and I choose a tree? The actor added, tell your loved ones, cremate me because you have to put the goodness in place. 
uh, and the tombstone. Now, he had said multiple times, right, about talking about his death, and he did so in here. Now, what he uh, what he has has got on to say is that he's ninety two. That's what I've heard him say. He's not going to have all uh, no a lot long to live, and. Right on one end, so he's getting all this stuff out. He's saying, like, a lot of old people, and God, hopefully I'm that way. He tells people exactly what they think. Uh, now, let me say this uh, about this. I have been hearing this. We're all going to die, and the planet's going to die since I've been a teenager. And even before that, right, even before that, where we had in uh, my Uncle Tommy, rest in peace, he was telling me back when I was like eight years old that there was a theory that in 1980, 81, somewhere around that, all the planets were going to align and we're all going to get caught in a huge gravimetric well and we're all going to die. That was not then. Before that, 1973, you had uh, 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 one religious group, right, uh, talking about, uh, uh, and where was it, 67, doesn't matter about the apocalypse happening. Then in the uh, late, in the 1990s, you had the Hale-Bob comic, uh, Comet folks, right, talking about the Hale-Bob Comet's going to come and going to kill us all. And then we had Ted Danson, right, from Cheers, saying we're only have 15 years to live. Then you had former Vice President Al Gore saying the same thing. And we're all going to die. And this comes out every once in a while. Sooner now, you can warn people about, hey, there's going to eventually be a massive environmental catastrophe. But then when it doesn't happen, now you got egg on your face. And now you look like a fool, right? It's sort of like when you go into, and before we got into human organizational performance here, right? And uh, now they're like, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. To, you're going to have, well, most of the time, that's not going to happen because the worker adjusts and you have, you no know, uh, error rates and you have guards and you have this and that all set up. That it doesn't mean anything after a while. Right? A lot of these things, especially if you're, let's say, in a heavily regulated, heavily scrutinized industry like the energy industry, guess what? There's a lot of things that go on, a lot of backups that go into that. And the, you know, you, if you're a worker in that industry, chances are you're not going to see a fatality ever. So to use this thing, you're going to die. You're going to, this is going to kill you. That's going to kill you. Guess what? It wears off after a while. So you got to watch out. And I think with this environmental stuff, my opinion, right, you can check out what, what I've done online. If you're like, well, so you know, hey, every couple of years you come up with this. This is going to happen. This is, and it's meant to manipulate people. You keep, right, remember, Saul Alinsky's Rule for Radicals. We talked about it last week. Keep the pressure on. Keep everybody under stress. Then it's easily easy to manipulate them if you keep everybody under stress. That's not what we need to do here. We need to have honest conversations, just like we were talking about with the demo demographic issues. we got to have some, some freaking conversations in our society, some debates. And I'm going to mention another program here, and a lot of people don't like him. Thank God Sean Hannity, I believe he's on right now on Fox News, is having a debate, uh, debate now left versus right. 
the two national leaders here. So bring on, bring on that debate, right? Uh, the last time a debate like this was happened was between Robert F. Kennedy Sr. and uh, Ronald Reagan, I believe it was in 68 or 60, yeah, it was in 67, 67 when uh, that happened, you know? I don't know. Talk, conversations, better conversations. That's what we need to do. Right? Now, the, the, I, you know, and the thing that I used to remember, and let me backtrack. Jim, I remember when it was 1980, right? We had this garbage bar, early 80s, I think it was 80, 81. We had this garbage barge in New York. You could Google it. It went up and down all over the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody wanted this garbage barge. The inside story was that the guy didn't want to pay what were called tipping fees at the landfills, and they couldn't find a land. He was looking for to get all of this stuff. And, you know, in the meantime, it's going through storms. It's going through this. Garbage is falling off the barge, this and that, up and down the whole eastern seaboard. And he ends up where he started in New York, and they dispose of all the stuff here. And that brought awareness to waste issues, solid waste issues, which were important back in the 70s, right? Solid waste, you had Love Canal, you had all different types of stuff. Now, we remember, we remember in the 80s, we are in danger of cutting down the rainforests because we are all using paper bags from at the supermarket. We got to get rid of paper bags and go to these biodegradable plastic bags. And this is how we were told again and again and again and again and again. Again. Okay. Now what do we hear? What? Right? 40 years later. Now we have a problem with microplastics and everything. What the hell? You caused another problem. Now, here we have a strong, uh, one other thing. Strong geomagnetic storm heading towards Earth, increasing chances for vivid northern lights further south, farther south. Multiple eruptions from the sun that have prompted a strong geomagnetic storm watch for Friday. That's tomorrow, which could cause vibrant auroras across the northern United States. If you've never seen it, uh, great thing. I've seen them in uh, this area, right, in uh, uh, Rockland County already. Uh, but the thing is, you cannot have uh, a moon. Right. The sun is approaching max, solar maximum in its 11-year cycle, resulting in more frequent space weather events. But this week's back-to-back solar phenomenon as a uh, prime example. Okay, great. We're going to cut to commercial break. Now that I'm calmed down, we're going to talk about this Yankin Majestic Resin Plant uh, thing going on here. All right. You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow, safety today. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars. 
Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. OSHA Recordables, catastrophic losses, environmental disasters. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy! In a world where danger lurks in every corner, one man stands as a beacon of hope. Jim Polzel, a veteran safety expert with over three decades of experience, now bringing his knowledge to you with Safety Wars. Engaging, informative, and always relevant, that's Safety Wars. Join a safety revolution with Safety Wars, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts and videos. Okay, we are back. An explosion and fire that killed the press. This is from October 7, 2021. Uh, So these are two government reports here. You have the OSHA part, and then you have the Chemical Safety Board report. And we're going to go through both of them here. right? An explosion and fire that killed a press operator. And I don't know how this was litigated. This is probably still being litigated and everything with, uh, and there's probably no final uh, uh, thing yet. Uh, if there is, well, okay, there is. And no, remember, like I said at the beginning, a lot of this stuff gets negotiated downward, it gets vacated, uh, modified, all litigated, all this stuff that goes into this uh, thing and uh, everything that goes into this thing. But what happens is, what, usually with these disasters, the uh, OSHA has within six months to issue a fine, right? Or a citation or make a decision to do something. Chemical Safety Board takes its time with everything for with good reason because they want to get down to the bottom and they get involved with these huge accidents that go out there. They can't want to get and do that. Their their purpose is different. They want to try to prevent other things from happening versus OSHA. They want compliance, but they only have six months to do their thing. And they'll normally issue a citation, in my experience, five months, two weeks, and after, right, right before the deadline. Uh, an explo- this is from October 7, 2021. An explosion in fire. The U.S. Department of Labor cites Ohio paint manufacturer for workplace safety failures following an explosion that killed one and injured eight workers. Yankin Majestic Paint Corporation faces 709,000 in OSHA fines for safety violations. An explosion in fire that killed a press operator and hospitalized eight other employees of Yankin Majestic Paint Corporation could have been for. Could have been prevented had the employer not altered a kettle reactor vessel improperly and then returned the vessel to service after it failed uh, following the alterations. The Federal Workplace Safety Inspection is found. And uh, OSHA cited the paint manufacturer for two willful and 33 serious safety violations of the agency's process safety management and hazardous waste operations and emergency response procedures. So that's 1910-120, right, uh, things. Uh, OSHA also noted violations involving lack of PPE and employee training. The agency proposed 
uh, $709,960 in fines and penalties and placed the Yankee Majestic in its severe violator enforcement program. Yankee Majestic Paint Corporation could have prevented this tra- terrible tragedy had they followed industry standards and removed a compromised kettle from service. Knowing that this company altered equipment, failed to use qualified fabricator, and returned equipment to service where it did not meet safety standards is unacceptable. Right, this is all alleged here. Uh, OSHA's investigation determined that in December 2020, Yankin Majestic altered the kettle reactor vessel and the manway opening, but did not ensure the vessel maintained its pressure-containing ability. On January 3rd, 2021, uh, following the alteration, newly installed manway failed. The company made additional alterations to the vessel when installing a new gas, and it again failed to adhere to OSHA's uh, PSM, Pressure Vessel Inspection Procedures. And in the API, American Petroleum Institute's Pressure Vessel Inspection Code. Company leadership failed to follow their own internal audit procedures and that were put in place to ensure the equipment's integrity of that repair process. Right, and it goes on and on. So let's click on this. There's a whole section uh, with pressure vessels. So uh, what happens is, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with the inspection procedures here. Uh, uh, because, uh, as everyone knows, I work for a paint, uh, a paint, an industrial painter that had very large portable blast pots, and they would have to uh, uh, go through inspections every so often, and they would look at the whole thing. And there was a major accident in South Jer- no, it was yeah, South Jersey from a paint company not affiliated with me, where they had a hand uh, home made blasting tank that was jury-rigged together and uh, uh, a part of it exploded and someone was killed. I'll scare you. I'll I'll, uh, save you the gory details. But essentially, uh, generally a pressure vessel is a storage tank or vessel that has been designed to operate at pressures above 15 PSI. Recent inspections of pressure vessels have shown that there are a considerable number of cracked, damaged, Vessels and workplaces. Cracked and damaged vessels can result in leakage or rupture failures. And again, all different types of things happen from the thing uh, detonating and everything else. And the American Petroleum Institute also has a uh, in pressure inve- uh, a uh, code here for uh, pressure uh, vessels, right? Pressure vessel inspection. And there's a code in there and everything. I have the API.org website there. So let's take a look at this. And I am watching the clock because I want to get to the CSB uh, part of this. So we're not going to read every one of these. Citation 1, item 1, serious. This was the process safety management uh, violation where you everything has to be in writing. All right, And the accident happened on April 8th. They did not have a written processes. And I see this often where there's not a written process uh, on how to do things, on how to operate it, how to shut it down, emergency shutdown, how to start things up, what sequence, uh, inspection procedures, anything like that, right? Uh, Nothing in writing. You're putting yourself at a risk. Here they injured uh, eight people and killed one. And this is part of it. This was contributing. $13,653 fine. Citation item one, uh, number two, 
Again, information pertaining to the technology of the process did not include operating limits, safe upper and lower limits for temperatures, freshers, and flows or compositions. Another $13,600 fine. Citation one item three. Uh, uh, da, da, da. Again, uh, materials, how it was constructed. That was 13600 What else we got here? Uh, piping and instrument diagrams. Uh, another one was relief system design and design basis. Not in the plan. And uh, design codes and standards, right? With that, that will probably be in an as-built drawing or something similar in the specs of it. The employer did not document that the equipment complies to recognize and generally accepted good engineering practices. That's where the API standards would kick in, 13,653. And did not, the process hazard analysis did not address the hazards of the process. And identification of previous incidents. All right. And lessons learned, that sort of thing. Engineering and administrative controls not listed. And all of these things seem to be 13,600. Let's. Now, here we have citation one, item 31. As far as a uh, serious thing was 1910-120. The training shall be based. This is for the. Uh, uh, for the uh, Haswaffer training, right? So, uh, again, the training that they have doesn't apply to actually what they have to know. So this is where we get into issues with what are your job duties going to be and what exactly is your training? So, for example, let's say I get trained by company A to do Haswaffer, 1910-120, that may not necessarily apply to what you do, right? The hazards that you do, that's all got to be all, uh, that all has to be worked out. And uh, apparently they did not provide or certify training for employees expected for emergency response. No first responder awareness level, no first responder operations level or on-scene incident commander training. Uh, delineated, $13,600 fine. And do, do, do. no PPE, right? No FRC, fire retardant clothing uh, with this. Uh, when they had thermal hazards and things of that nature. And going on, and here is the willful one. Type of violation, willful serious. Information retaining the equipment and in the processes, uh, process safety management. The employer shall document that equipment that complies with recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices. And it goes on here. They got them twice for that. $136,000 fine. Citation to item two, willful serious. There was no management of change uh, procedure. Wow. Uh, what was that? Another $136,000 fine. A lot going on. Now, we're going to go to the OSHA.gov establishment search. Let's try this one. I would, I'm interested in seeing what the status is. So, the Yankee Majestic Paint Corporation, and it's where Jessica, again, 
I'm just reading off of the government reports here. Where is this? Okay, everything is being contested according to the website today and they're contesting it. That's where we're at here uh, with this. All right, and apparently there was another inspection here uh, in in uh, September and they came up with nothing on that and it was a uh, 1910.022a three standard sided uh let's see the employer it was a walking working surfaces uh problem okay that's where they're at so all these social fines are being contested probably I'm, i don't know i'm not involved in this uh investigation but probably because of the CSV report. They're waiting for that to come out. And I tell you what, we're going to take one second here, uh, and then we're going to come back with a CSV report. Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Pozel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. All right, so here we are on the CSB uh, report here. Uh, and I'm going to say this, right? I'm going to read this off from their report. Uh, CSB was created by the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, and the CSV was first funded and commenced operations in 1998. The CSV is not an enforcement or regulatory body, and no part of the conclusions, findings, or recommendations of the board relating to any accidental release or the investigation thereof shall be admitted as evidence or used in any action or suit for damages arising from uh, any matter mentioned in such report. So this is... Uh, they're just trying to get to the bottom of things, all right, with this and try to prevent accidents. So uh, that's our little disclaimer here. And by the way, this is non-copyrighted, but we are going to be referencing it that this is not our issue. So they identified the following three things. Mechanical integrity of low-pressure vessels, safeguard selection and the hierarchy of controls, and emergency preparedness. Those are the three things that they had uh, discussed here. The CSB blah, 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 is a federal... Okay, we already mentioned this. Uh, okay. So this is the report to the April 8th, 2021 vessel leak explosion and fire incident at the Yankin Majestic Resin Plant fatally injured Wendell Light. Rest in peace, Wendell Light. Right, this does, right? Someone did die with so this is the executive summary. I'm just going to read some of the highlights here. At approximately 12.02 a.m. on April 8, 2021, a mixture of flammable naphtha solvent vapors and resin liquid became pressurized and then released through the seal of a closed manway of an operating kettle in the Yankee Majestic site, right? The naphtha vapors spread throughout the enclosed building and formed the flammable vapor cloud both inside and outside the building. Approximately two minutes later, at 12.04 a.m., the flammable vapor cloud found an ignition source and an explosion erupted 
which ignited additional flammable material, resulting in a large fire that was extinguished after approximately 11 hours here. Uh, there were firefighters and hazmat teams, and uh, all different things happened, right? Bad things. One employee was fatally injured from thermal injuries and inhalation of products of combustion was found partially covered by rubble inside the second floor of the resin plant. Eight other employees were transported to area hospitals for injuries suffered during the explosion and building collapse, including third-degree burns and limb fractures, with one employee requiring a leg amputation after he was crushed under a collapsed debris. In addition, firefighting water runoff entered a nearby Alum Creek through the storm drain. The Ohio EPA reported that it observed off-site impacts from this incident, including firefighting water runoff through at least April 11, 2021. Yetkin and Majestica has estimated its total property damage from the incident at over $90 million and demolished the severely damaged resident plant after the incident. The CSV investigations identified the following safety issues. Mechanical integrity of low-pressure vessels. Yankin Majestic did not adequately ensure the mechanical integrity of a new 20-inch manway that was installed on a processed vessel approximately three months before the incident. And uh, the Kettle 3 normally operated at or near atmospheric pressure but was known to potentially build up to 15 PSI during some upset conditions. After the new manway was added, uh, Yankee Majestic performed the leak check up to 4 PSI and allowed Kettle 3 to continue operating for three months until the incident. On the day of the incident, the Kettle 3's new manway did not withstand more than 9 PSI of pressure during a process upset and leaked hot resin and flammable solvent into the facility. The CSV determined that the company did not follow basic quality assurance practices, such as adequately pressure testing equipment after alterations. I'm going to tell you, that happens more often than you think. Right, especially if you're dealing like uh, what I was saying with pressure vessels with uh, like abrasive blasting. We're not allowed to call it sandblasting. Safeguard collection, uh, selection and hierarchy of controls. The hierarchy of controls is a risk management principle based on ranking hazard controls. And again, if you're going to be uh, uh, writing a plan or doing training, this is probably a good document to reference. The hierarchy of controls is a risk management principle based on ranking hazard controls from most effective to least effective. On the day of the incident, the system design allowed an operator to add solvent to the hot resin-filled kettle while unknown to the operator, the agitator, that's a piece of equipment, not a person, which was supposed to mix the liquids in the kettle was off. The subsequent activation of the agitator, agitator caused the liquid solvent to rapidly vaporize as it contacted the hot resin, leading to the pressure increase in the kettle and the subsequent release through the closed manway. So it's sort of like this. If you ever used a blender for making some batters and different recipes and doughs, you leave it on sometimes and then you add things to it. This is the same idea here. And what happened was that agitator was not on and did not allow for the stuff to mix. And what you had was, and as it mixed, lowers the temperature, maybe a chemical reaction goes on in there, it gives it some resonance time, that sort of thing. And what happened was you add hot material, uh, this material to hot material and it vaporizes 
right, with that. Although administration, uh, uh, the income addressing had not installed or configured interlocks to prevent solvent addition to the kettle, the agitator was off during normal bash operations and relied on a computer panel panel status indicators that were not equipped with alarms to communicate the agitator's status to the operator. Again, this is human error, and human error is normal. You know, it's not when there's going to be, if there's going to be problems, it's going to be when there's going to be a problem. Although administrative controls are essential for reducing risk, they depend on human actions, perception, and judgment. Right, you also have the and the PBS people love to call it normalization of deviance, right? Uh, and that's where you allow deviant things to happen in a process. Administrative control should not be relied on alone without additional robust design and engineering controls and high, highly hazardous chemical processes. If we go over time here on Safety FM, just pick us up on the uh, on the. Uh, 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 on the YouTube and one of our other channels. Emergency preparedness. The Yankin Majesty did not have adequate mitigative safeguards to minimize the consequences of the incident. For example, the company did not effectively utilize flammable gas detection systems and associated alarms to audibly notify on-site personnel of a hazardous gas release and they need to evacuate. During the incident, some of the gas monitors installed within the facility detected the flammable solvent release approximately one minute after the release began, sent an email to an off-site employee, but the monitor did not, monitors did not sound audible alarms to warn employees of the hazard. I can't tell you the number of facilities that I've been in where this is the case. So what the hell do you do? You're a contractor. You're here. You ask, are there alarms? Oh, there ain't no freaking alarms. They're not a... Well, what my, my control is... Two things. Either I walk off the job and say, hey, look, this isn't safe. We need something in here. And we need procedures, right? That's the second thing where I carry my own air monitoring equipment for this. That's what I do. Yankem uh, Majestic did not specifically train its employees to recognize or respond to the presence of flammable solvent vapor clad and its associated hazards. During the incident, this lack, this overall lack of hazard recognition led to some personnel approaching the hazardous gas to investigate the release instead of initiating a plant-wide evacuation. Hey, that doesn't look right. Let's go and check that out. Happens more than you think, especially in a permit-required confined space fatality. I'm told 66% of the fatalities are from situations like this or a would-be rescuer or what have you. A good Samaritan goes in and guess what? Shit blows up and they die. All right, finally, Yankem Majestic allowed Resoplane operators to wear cotton short sleeve shirts while working in proximity to flammable materials unless they were performing specific tasks. Now, this blows away the argument that not everybody at a facility has to wear fire retardant clothing. And the, no, with that, I mean, at facilities I worked at, up until 20, in the energy sector, up to 2010, they did not have to wear fire retardant clothing on most areas there. Uh, but they, some of them started early. What really caused it was a situation at another uh, facility uh, there that we talked about one time. We won't talk about it now, uh, where people were killed.
there, uh, 15 people were killed because of an explosion. And uh, again, burns, right? With that. Now, uh, we talked about FRC here. And uh, what were the contributing to the uh, thing, right? We talked about what it caused, right? Contributing to the incident was failure to adhere to basic pressure vessel integrity, quality, and insurance practices. There are companies out there, and if, right? Let's say you're the worker. You're the worker. Maybe that's a good question. Hey, uh, when was the last time this stuff was uh, inspected? Do we have plans or anything like that with it? Now you can use that as a leading indicator of what kind of employer you're dealing with. Hey, the, right? And if you're a shop steward or union official, this should be a question that you should be asking out there. If you're a safety professional, they may try to dump all this crap on you. Maybe, hey, I got pressure vessels. Where are the procedures? Where are they? What are we going to be doing, right? Uh, where are they? If they don't have them, you're going to have an issue. I had this issue working in Montana back in 1995 with a thermal desorption unit. 1986, maybe, with a thermal desorption unit. I said, where are the written procedures? We don't need no stinking written procedures. Well, how are we going to know whether this thing, how to operate this? Oh, Fred knows how to operate it. Well, if Fred knows how to, how to operate it, is he going to explain to Joe and Gary and Charles how to operate this? Oh, no, no, no. He knows how to operate it. We don't have time to train. Okay, great. Wonderful. Right? Contributing to this, and I didn't know a lot. I want to handle it a little bit differently now. Contributing to the severity, by the way, they got thrown off of that job about six months afterwards. But uh, that's a story for another day. Contributing to the severity of the incident was the company's inadequate emergency preparedness, which led to lack of the timely evacuation of all employees from the resin plant, lack of audible alarms to alert employees to the presence of flammable vapor concentrations in the resin plant, the lack of flame-resistant uniforms. I'm going to go uh, with that. We mentioned that. Now, I'm going to go to our outro right now with this, and then we're going to be picking this up, right, because we're going overtime here. So I need to get this in before the Safety FM uh, stream kicks out here. And... The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. All right, so let's uh, pick this up again here. All right, and uh, we're going to go into the recommendations part now. All right, update. Uh, so this is the recommendation. So these are the three basic problems here. Right, uh, improper design, improper uh, inspection, right, 
And uh, the last one was training, basically. Your emergency evacuation plan, your emergency action plan. Again, when do you need to uh, 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 employ that? When do you need to write that? Basically, on when do you need to train? It's got to be written. you got to have one. Okay. Well, I'm from, like, day one. It needs to be updated periodically. It needs to be communicated to the workforce. And, uh, and let me uh, uh, point this out. All right. We had a situation in a facility I was working with. I shared this story here where a guy, uh, a process area was on fire. Fire alarm was pulled. I, I was there in the unit with him and I said, let's go. The place is on fire. And the guy said, I don't listen to safety people. It's on fire. Can't you see the fire? I'm not going. So I said, well, I tell you what, I'm not burning to death. So I left the uh, thing and the firefighters stopped me when I got out right on foot. And I said, there's a guy up there who refuses to come out of uh, the thing. Well, why is he not coming out, Jimmy? He doesn't listen to safety people. Well, he's going to effing listen to me, the firefighter says, and I'm, you know, and it turned out that you, the reason why you have drills that, and you have to, uh, to discuss this is that there are people who are like that out there for whatever reason. Uh, it turns out he was, uh, you know, he was dealing with safety professionals that were less than professional, had zero respect for the industry, had and everything else. But you got to identify that pe- with people and you know, leadership and everything goes in there. And that's the advantage of doing drills. If you have someone there who has this attitude. It's a danger to himself and everybody else. You've got to try to solve why that is. And, no, I hate to say this, but uh, uh, the guy was disciplined over this, and he was demoted for for this uh, reason, for doing this. Uh, now, where he wasn't allowed to be able to work alone or uh, work without a foreman ever again. He was a foreman. They demoted him to regular painter. And uh, essentially, he uh, that's how he finished out his career. Uh, not only lost some income, but lost some overtime and everything, but, you know, it impacted him uh, with that, right? So, uh, again, training is important. You have to do the training. You got to do the communicating. Again, audible alarms. No audible alarms. I've worked at facilities, hey, What's the alarm for if there's a problem? We don't need no stinking alarm. Oh, we don't know. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing ever happens here. Oh, that's great. Uh, What are the chemicals here? Uh, This is okay. Let me go. And I go to the client and I uh, say, I get the air monitoring equipment. They don't don't have any. They're not doing their job. Usually it's public employers that do crap like that, right? I'm surprised that a company like this would do. Now, fire retardant uniforms. Let's talk about that for a minute. Fire retardant uniforms are uh, fire retardant uh, uniforms. They're usually uh, they're, there are two different ratings that I'm familiar with. The NFA twenty one twelve, right, which would probably be the ones that are appropriate for this environment. Uh, I don't probably don't quote me on that. Uh, 
And the other one is NFA 70E. NFPA 70E are specifically deal with arc flash type things. NFPA 2112 deal with stuff like this. And what happens is uh, the material is either inherently flame retardant, meaning the material itself is, or it has some type of a coating on it, right? So there's advantages and disadvantages to either. Uh, with the ones that are inherently flame retardant, uh, you don't have to worry too much about laundry. You still got to worry about it, but not so much. Follow the instructions. The ones that are uh, not inherently, meaning the material is not uh, flame retardant, it's treated, now you have to worry about cleaning and the number of times it's cleaning. One of my friends, his uh, uh, daughter had done a science fair project on the effectiveness of, uh, on the impact of washing of flyer retardant clothing. Pretty smart. And she was able to determine the more washes, the less fire retardant it was. So uh, along those lines with that, uh, it, what happens is rather than it sustaining a flame and melt or melting, what happens is it, it gets exposed to a flame, the flame goes away, and it extinguishes itself. It doesn't stay on fire. Now, again, they call it PPE, Right. This is what the reality is when you're wearing FRC, fire retardant clothing. Your underwear matters because what it is, it's not going to prevent you from getting burned, but it's going to reduce the severity of the burn, generally speaking, with, with, with that. I can't guarantee anything, but this is my understanding of it. It's going to reduce the severity of it in all likelihood, not a guarantee because many different things that go into this. So for example, you're wearing nylon underwear, right? Not flame retardant underwear. They do make flame retardant underwear. You're not wearing uh, cotton underwear. What happens is it gets hit with the flame and the nylon underwear, right? Melts and sticks to your skin, right? Real bad situation there uh, with that. And they end up having to peel it off. I had uh, known someone where this happened to, where he was wearing uh, nylon sneakers and caught on fire from gas from a gasoline fire, and they ended up having to uh, debride his feet with, where, with from molten uh, nylon, right? He had third-degree burns. Uh, see, now, here are the recommendations. They're recommending API 510 pressure vessel inspection code or part three of the National Board Inspection Code for this, for process vessels and highly hazardous chemical service. Uh, the recommendation two, uh, you end up, ha they go to another industry standard, uh, PIP. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, a PIP, a PIP uh, organization. Uh, low-pressure welded steel vessel uh, certification. Again, and then you have a hierarchy of controls. That is through the use of prevention through design. That's PIT or PTD, PIT, prevention through design, using a hierarchy of controls in future resin plant designs. Specifically, uh, prioritize inherently safer designs and engineering controls to prevent process safety events. Refer to su sources such as safety instruments going on and on. Again, great 
uh, document here because now if you're that safety professional, you're not exactly sure what's going on with this stuff. Now you have, guess what? Resources you could get. And I'm sure that they're available uh, through organizations or even that place that's named after a river in South America. Uh, identify and document all equipment that could release flammable materials and install LEL, lower explosive limit, detectors in accordance with sources and guidance, uh, such as, uh, and they mentioned two uh, 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 resources here. Develop and implement requirements for personnel to wear flame-resistant uniforms in all operating areas that process flammable chemicals. Now, let me back this up a little bit. People, right, you have a hierarchy of controls here, and you have, right, elimination, substitution, uh, engineering, administrative, and PPE being the last. Now, this is one of those examples where the PPE has a dual purpose. One, it's a substitute, right? It's a substitution type thing on the hierarchy of controls because it's, FRC is better than wearing cotton or nylon, right? That's number one. And number two, PPE, it's the last thing that you want to rely on because you're still going to get hurt it's a, along the lines of a substitution type thing. So uh, what am I saying? you got to go through everything and you got to try to prevent these things from happening and the PPE is just one part of that because what's safety? Guards and controls and resiliency. The resiliency, the ability to respond, right? I didn't have here. Uh, and then you have guards, all these inspections and everything else, the construction procedures, that's one of your guards. And the other thing is training. So that's what we, how we judge safety here. And they have certain uh, things with uh, 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 recommendations in the API to update things uh, for that, uh, determining and documenting the low-pressure vessel's design pressure. Uh, that's one thing that's missing here with a lot of these things in my experiences. Okay, they have stuff for high pressure, but what about the lower pressure? Uh, the ASME, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, they have, they're basically the same stuff with design stuff. And that's where we're going to end this at, uh, oh, how many minutes? At uh, an hour and 10 minutes here on the video stream. Uh, let's see if there's anything else I want to cover on tonight's program. And again, all that information is available on the CSB uh, website. Uh, so... Uh, right now, we have the, the Santos and Newsom debate that's on. We'll check that out. Now, here's another one, a bizarre story. Hall and Oates sail. Uh, uh, now, this has been uh, on, uh, on, uh, 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 no, on in the news for the last couple of days here where there's a lawsuit. And basically, uh, Oates wants out of Hall and Oates. And Hall is basically says, look, I'm not getting into a business with somebody else. We're partners here on this. Uh, and you can't sell without my approval, sort of thing. All right. Uh, going on. Uh, so they're litigating that. 
MTA worker killed by a subway train on 34th Street, Herald Square Station. I'm familiar with this station. An on-duty MTA track worker died in a mishap. This is out of uh, Midtown Manhattan with a subway train in Midtown overnight, just one month shy of his one-year anniversary. Again, new worker. Hilarion Joseph, 57, was part of a cleaning crew just south of ha- the Herald Square Station just before uh, uh, 12.15 a.m. That's the middle of the night. Uh, that's when he came to contact and was dragged by a slow-moving northbound D train. The train was going about 10 miles per hour during the scheduled maintenance. Uh, and, and, no, rest in peace on there. That gap. Mind the gap. That's what it's looking like. Okay, that's all that I have for you tonight with Safety Wars. Uh, we already issued our uh, disclaimer here. We're going to continue with... Uh, no, and, uh, again, I have a... Uh, Tradition here, back with the tradition uh, when we used to have broadcast uh, TV in this country, right? Uh, that was only on until one or two o'clock in the morning. They would always put out the uh, put on the national anthem, and I would stay up and you know you made sure that your parents shut off the TV so your parents didn't hear that national anthem thing. So anyway, uh, that's. Uh, what we got, uh, what we're going to be playing. That's our tradition here. And... Good night, everybody. <laughs>